circumstances. We've come to a point in Jacob's life where he has decided that his relationships are more important than anything else, and he knows that he's messed up. And this may sound familiar to some of you, because you typically will spend the first half of your life chasing other kinds of pursuits. You will chase other priorities. You will chase money and career and, you know, achievements of different kinds, including like marriage and family. But the relationship aspect often doesn't really come home for someone in their heart until the second half of their life when they're facing their mortality or whatever. And, you know, I'm 40 now. I'm kind of feeling this a little bit, but I, I'm not as old as Tom Brady, but I'm old. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Super Bowl champion old, but I'm, uh, <laughs> I understand you get to a point in your life where relationships matter. You want to patch up those broken relationships. Sometimes you wait till it's too late and then they're gone. You know, they, they die or... or feels like the relationship's too far gone to restore it. And uh, I'm not sure there's anything more devastating um, than that when you're in that season of your life. So Jacob's come to that point where he wants to make things right with his brother. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob really did his brother wrong. He really stepped far out of line, uh, deceived his brother, deceived his father to steal his father's blessing that belonged to his brother. It's just really deep and and um, perverse stuff that Jacob did to Esau. And then they just stopped talking. And that probably sounds familiar to some of you. Um, we probably all got a relationship like that in our life right now, where you just, you just would rather not <laughs> address it. You'd rather avoid it. And so years pass, and the last thing Jacob ever heard from Esau's mouth was, I'm going to kill Jacob. And then Jacob disappeared and went off and did his own thing and pretended like Esau didn't even exist. And Jacob's family might as well have been dead to him because Jacob was off pursuing his own stuff, his own life. And I don't know, none of us really know where Esau went from there, um, how he dealt with that loss and, and devastation. But we follow Jacob around and he continues to try and fill that void created by the brokenness of his home and his family life with other kinds of things, with possession, property, women, etc. Nothing works. So now Jacob's trying to go and reconcile with Esau. To his credit, right, he's going to try and patch things up. As we talk about this today and what happened next, I want to ask you to engage with me here. Um, this probably won't be the, the catchiest or kitschiest or funniest sermon I've ever preached, but you will get out of this message what you put into it with me. And as I look out on this sea of faces, and I know we've all got our church masks on where we're all okay, high five, you know, that kind of thing. And, but as I look out, I know. I know the brokenness that exists in this room. I feel the weight. I carry the weight with you. I know the stories. And I know that there is, for every face that I look at right now, there's at least one relationship that should be one way and is another. Like it should be something you lean on, but it's non-existent. There is a relationship in your inner circle that looks a lot like Jacob and Esau. There's been betrayal or there's been some kind of neglect and you have just decided to not address it. And now time's gone by and it's weird, and it's awkward, and it's hard. And sometimes those relationships are father-child relationships. Sometimes those relationships are uh, you know, siblings or friends or a spouse. And there's all sorts of different reasons why these relationships fall apart. Everything from politics to religion, to adultery, to something like your kid coming out of the closet, 
tears families apart. Sometimes it feels irreparable. And so you carry that around with you like a backpack just full of weight. If you were the perpetrator, you carry the weight of guilt. If you were the victim, you think you carry the weight of grief. And we carry it around in silence, not knowing that everyone else is carrying one too. I want you to know today that whatever that relationship is for you, hold it close as we talk. Hold that person close, as close as you can, as we talk. And trust me when I tell you that reconciliation is not impossible like you think. Healing is not outside of reach. Now, it may not look like you think because you've been trained, many of us have been trained in a secular mindset to think that reconciliation and healing is dependent on our capacity to reconcile and heal and forgive and love again. Like it's dependent on us. And if we apologize well enough or if the other person does and we're forgiving enough, then we'll reconcile. So it's dependent on us. And if your sense of reconciliation and healing is dependent on you, then yeah, you might be right. It might be irreconcilable. But for believers, part of trusting God means understanding that real healing doesn't begin or happen between us and the other person. Real healing begins between us and God. Sometimes we try and navigate these situations using old methods. The methods, the methods we used before we knew God, before we trusted him. We still try and connive and manipulate and scheme and plan our way through these situations. And the person we're in relationship with, they see right through it. They know it's not real fundamental DNA level change. They know it's just tinkering. You know, you go to therapy, you learn a new tool to, to, to work on together. Encourage each other more. And when they encourage you, you know they're doing it because the therapist told them to. Use I language instead of you language. And when you do it, you know they're, they're trying, but it's not fundamental change. It's obligatory. So all these efforts we make to try to tinker around brokenness doesn't really get to the heart of it because the heart of change is not something that happens between two people. The heart of change is something that begins between you and God. Some of us have in our hands an old roadmap and we're trying to navigate. It's like we're trying to navigate the city of Houston today with a map that was printed in 1950. That map that used to serve you in your old life doesn't apply anymore. The city has changed. You have changed. Life is different now. You need a new way forward. And we're going to see in today's story from Genesis 33 that Jacob is trying to heal a new, uh, an old wound in old ways. And we're going to see the switch in him. From an old way of healing brokenness, which involved his manipulation, his scheming, to a new way, which involves submission and surrender. We're going to see that in a minute from Genesis 33. So we're, we're talking through Jacob today. Hold that person, that relationship close in your heart as, as we do. All right. Um, last week, if you weren't here, we talked about Genesis 32. And in Genesis 32 is really the turning point in Jacob's life. Before that, Jacob was a liar, a deceiver, a schemer, a manipulator. And he worked people. You may know someone like this. You may be someone like this. He worked people constantly. And he did so out of, he felt like it was self-preservation. He was on his own. No one was in his corner. He had to do this. But in Genesis 32, as he's on his way to meet 
Esau. And even as he's going to meet Esau, trying to make things right, he's still scheming. Because if you were here last week, you heard how he was piecing together the different groups in his caravan on his way to see Esau. Like he was trying to create a plan that would soften the blow, in other words, because he was still afraid of Esau. And then God came to him the night before he met Esau. Before he got to Esau, his brother, to heal his relationship, God got to Jacob. Had that not happened, the story we're about to tell might have gone very differently. And this has bearing on whatever relationship you're holding close to your heart right now. So open your Bible if you have it or just your study guide and uh, let's read Genesis 33. It's also gonna be on the screen behind me. Um, Genesis chapter 33, verses one through four. All right, here we go. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. I'm gonna stop right there just a sec to explain this. So Jacob looked up. It wasn't like they were from me to you. It was like they were from me to uh, River Oaks Donuts or somewhere, like over there, right? Like that at a distance, Jacob saw Esau's group of 400 men coming toward him. And what that meant, it didn't look like a welcome wagon. They didn't, they weren't, they weren't like nice dudes. You know, I, you know, I think these were warriors and Jacob knew it and he panicked even though God wrestled with Jacob the night before and gave him a new name and a new way to deal with stuff, he's still trying to cope in his old ways. I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you experience a change. God comes to you, wrestles with you, changes you in some way, gives you a new name, a new purpose, but you still have to fight off those old habits that ever happened to you. Jacob still has to fight off these old habits. This is what he does. This is the evidence of that uh, at the end of verse one. So Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He's doing exactly what he planned to do the day before. God came to him and changed him. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. I'm gonna stop there because I want you to see the meaning of this scheme. The meaning of this is Jacob doesn't, still trust God enough with the situation. He's still trying to make his own way and lean on his own understanding because he puts the people who are least valuable to him in the front, just in case Esau still has this chip on his shoulder, just in case Esau's in a killing mood today. Let's put those servants and their kids up front. And then let's put Leah, the wife he didn't love, and her kids next. And then let's put Rachel, the woman he's infatuated with, and their son, Joseph. And if you notice in the passage, Joseph is the only child who's named, which tells us that Jacob has picked up and carried forward the bad habit of his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, who played favorites with their kids, Jacob and Esau. And he's doing the same thing. The fact that Joseph is the only kid named means Jacob is preferring Joseph. And he's going to pay a price for it, just like his father Isaac did. And we're going to see that next week. Just hang on to that for a second. But he's leaning on those same old ways. But then, this is a glorious moment, we see Jacob finally breaking with those old habits. Finally, we see a new man in the next verse, verse 3. And then Jacob himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground 
seven times as he approached his brother. So instead of staying at the back of the line, waiting to see if Esau was still in a killing mood, Jacob runs to the front of the caravan and bows down seven times, which was a cultural symbol, a, a, a norm, a more of, uh, that, that said, I'm your servant. You're my superior. Which is interesting and it would have been meaningful to Esau because all Esau ever heard his mother say was one day, Esau, you're going to bow down to your little brother, Jacob. One day you're going to bow down. One day Jacob's going to rule. And here Jacob is submitting himself as a servant to Esau. It's an act of sincere and extreme humility. Jacob is not the same self-preserving man that he was before. Something fundamentally shifted in him at that DNA level the night before when he wrestled with God. And then this happened. Verse 4. Esau, who came with 400 men, I am certain, ready to do battle. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Listen, nobody, and I mean nobody, especially people that lived in Bible times, could have seen this coming. This is not the behavior of Old Testament era men. First of all, a man in Jacob's position who held all the cards, who held his father's blessing, who had gotten rich in his own right. Jacob didn't bow to another man. Servants bowed, right? So men of their stature, they didn't bow down. Only slaves did that. And then we see Esau running toward Jacob. Men, it is known, men didn't run in Old Testament times, in Bible times. Men didn't run. Children ran. Dignified men didn't run. They wore these long sort of robes, right? They couldn't have run without tripping or hiking up their little skirts and running, <laughs> showing their legs. It would have been a disgrace, but that's what Esau does. He runs, even though only children ran. Men, brothers, didn't throw themselves around each other like this passage describes where it says they threw their arms around each other. One of the Hebrew words literally means uh, Jacob buried his face in Esau's neck. It's not something grown men brothers did. Lovers did that, you know, it's kind of a more intimate thing, but not grown men brothers, but here they are doing that. And on top of everything else, they're weeping. Another thing men were not supposed to do Women did that, children, emotional people did that, but not grown men. Something shifted. But I can't tell you how important it is to know that the shift didn't happen when they saw each other. The shift in Jacob didn't happen when he saw Esau. The shift in Jacob happened before, when he wrestled with God the night before. Had he not wrestled with God the night before, this moment, I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like this, where you're facing this person with whom you've struggled, with whom you've had strife, with you've, you've had fights, your family's being torn apart by this one relationship, and in that moment, it's all just there. It's like a pregnant moment that's full of power and potential to go either direction. This could be a disaster or it could change our lives for the better. 
That's the moment Jacob and Esau were in. But Jacob's posture toward Esau had already shifted the night before when he spent the night struggling with God. Do you see that? So the first step to reconciliation isn't about you and them. It's about you and God. And when you wrestle with God, you learn to stop pointing fingers at them. You learn to stop worrying about them. You learn to stop obsessing about them or being afraid of them. Even if the brokenness in your life goes all the way back to your childhood and it's deep and it's just been decrepit and festering inside of you for years, when you wrestle with God first, he, learn, he, he teaches you how to, how to heal from that. And instead of worrying about the other person, all God puts in front of you is your own sin and his mercy. And your sin becomes the only problem in your world. And his grace is the only solution. Had Jacob not had that encounter with God in which he learned to see his own sin and not just Esau's aggression, when he faced Esau, that meeting would have gone very differently. I'm convinced. Esau came ready for a fight. If Jacob had given any indication that he was the same conniving, manipulating, trickster that he was before, I'm convinced Esau would have attacked. But one of the most amazing things in this story is that Esau, by virtue of the change in Jacob's heart, Esau was changed too. He came ready for a fight. He saw Jacob bowing down. His heart was softened. Never give up on the possibility of reconciliation, but just know that it doesn't begin with an apology or a strategy or a self-help technique. It begins with you on your knees with God dealing with your own sin first. People are often like uh, surprised, I guess, when I uh, talk about this. I guess because Gio and I are pastors, we're supposed to have a perfect life <laughs> together. We haven't. We're celebrating 20 years this year of marriage, and um, it's been amazing, but it's been hard at times. And I've shared before how we have uh, we've taken a peek over that cliff to see what it looks like. We've tiptoed to the precipice of divorce more than once. We've said those words, separation, divorce to each other in the past. It's been a few years, but we have. And I think back to those moments like the one Jacob had with Esau, those moments full of potential and possibility, those moments that could go one of two ways, either extreme. And there's one that comes to mind in particular. It was in our living room in Kansas City. When we were so broken, we were at our worst, and it was as dark as it had ever been for us. And we both knew it. And uh, we both were seeking some answers. This was right after I had really come to Jesus in 2013. And I went to God about it. And she went to God about it. And when we came together, I remember what I said to her was, I'm sick and I need help. And she said, I'm cold and bitter, and I need help. 
And that was it. And we hugged. And we cried. And we prayed. And we're here. Still married. (laughs) With our kids and a church we started after that. But had that moment gone another way, I can't say that I would be here today or that any of us would as a church. Had, instead of coming to that living room meeting that day and saying, I'm sick and I need help, had I said, I'm sick maybe, but you're cold and bitter. Or had she said, I'm cold and bitter because of all this stuff you've done to me. Maybe it would have gone completely differently. But we came with mercy in our hearts because of the wrestling we had done with God before. My sin was the worst problem we faced in my mind. And her sin was the worst problem we faced in her mind. And we met in the middle and the Holy Spirit healed us. Right? But uh, it's so easy in those moments of insecurity and brokenness to just point fingers, especially when on paper it looks like one person's more at fault than the other, especially when it's really raw and really hurtful and it goes back a long way and there's been a lot of repercussions and consequences. I understand what it's like. And I'm not the only one who understands what it's like. Jesus understands what it's like. That's what the cross symbolized. You have a savior who sympathizes with your circumstances whenever it hurts, whenever someone has wronged you more than you've wronged them and maybe you didn't deserve it. And yet still he calls you to struggle with him before you struggle with them. To deal with your own sin and be forgiven before you try and extend forgiveness to somebody else. Only by his strength can you find within you the courage to bow seven times before someone with whom you a strange relationship. I don't know what uh, you're up against, what relationships you're grieving today, but I know that there is much at stake. And the consequences are far greater than you think. And I want to encourage you to fight for reconciliation. To have courage and face the situation. Paul says it better than I could in, in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5. Um, he says it this way, uh, verses 18 to 21. He says, all this, he's talking about the gospel, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So God did the reconciling first, and then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or trespasses against him, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are now the ambassadors of Christ, but only after we receive the reconciliation, the grace from God, once we wrestle with him and deal with our own sin first. I know it's hard. God knows it's hard but it's worth it. And it begins not with you and them, but with you and God. And it, begin, it can begin right now. This is a baptism Sunday at the story. One of my favorite days. And baptism symbolizes the beginning of something new. It's, it's like a wedding ring, but between you and God, this is an outward proclamation of your trust in God. And everything changes when his grace reigns in your life. We have some people who are going to be baptized in a moment. 
and uh, they're going to be up here. And while I know that uh, not everybody brought a change of clothes to be <laughs> baptized up here, um, we also have, uh, during communion, an opportunity for anyone here on whom the Spirit is working. And if God is calling you out to deal with this once and for all, to seek reconciliation with him before you can seek it with them, I pray you don't let the moment pass that you come and pray with us here during communion as other people are doing their thing. Nobody will see. It'll just be you and God and whoever's here praying, me or Pastor Gio. And if you're already baptized, I'll put a little water on your hand or on your head and remind you of your baptism. If you've never been baptized, we can talk about baptizing you right now at the end of today's service during communion. It would be my highest honor. And I believe God is calling you as his daughter, as his son, to be a minister of reconciliation to those around you. And the first step is to be reconciled to God today by his grace. Would you pray with me? Jesus set us free from our hard-headedness and our shame, our bitterness, our resentment, our brokenness. We have been so um, enslaved by the broken relationships in our lives that many of us don't even see it anymore. God, I pray for freedom today. For freedom from the chains that have bound us. For a new day to begin by your grace, by the waters of your baptism. We thank you for the hope that we have in your gospel. That no one and no relationship is beyond reconciliation or beyond the reach of your grace. We love you. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.